welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at Nehemiah and the weapons that were brought against him in his attempt to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And uh, we've, looked at, we've looked at a number of the weapons that were used against him. Can you remember what any of them were? Compromise. Lies. Discouragement. Yeah, discouragement. There was, it started off, didn't it? It started off at the thin end of the wedge with ridicule and mockery. And then as Sue said, when that didn't work, it moved into offers of compromise and then lies and rumours. And when even those didn't work, they moved on to use fear. They said, come on, you'd better go and lock yourself away because people are coming to kill you. And then finally, there were people who were disloyal to him. Now, those are all weapons which to one extent or another we see deployed within the church from time to time. Fortunately, we've been lucky. Well, perhaps that's not the right word to use. But we've been fortunate in that we have not seen a lot of many of those things at all. We haven't seen a lot of ridicule. We've been accepted in the town. We've not been put in a position where we've had to compromise. I haven't become aware of any lies or rumours, so they haven't worked if that's what's going on. And we haven't been put under fear. And neither have we had people that have been disloyal. But that having been said, these things are rife in the church. And so what we're going to do this week is look at how Nehemiah overcame this attack on him. This, in fact, it was a barrage of attacks, wasn't it? It wasn't just one, it was relentless. It was one thing after another. And we're going to look at how he overcame them. Because in his determination to build the walls around Jerusalem, he pushed aside every attack that was hurled at him. And actually, if we're going to see the church restored to its intended glory... We've got to have a similar determination. Nothing will stop us from building the church. First of all, we read in Nehemiah, the opening um, verses of chapter 4. When Samballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burnt as they are? Tobiah the Amorite, who was at his side, said, What they are building... If even a fox climbed on it, 
it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O Lord our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as a plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Nehemiah overcame that first obstacle very simply. He just got on with it. He just got on with the job. People were laughing at Nehemiah. Come on, they said, you can't build with all this rubbish. You know, even a rabbit would knock it over. That's what they were saying. Okay, they said fox, but the intention is the same. You know, if something just hops up on there, the whole thing will collapse. So what did Nehemiah do? He gave the best possible answer to that ridicule. He built the wall. And when people mock you, the best response is to build the wall and be true to your convictions. There's no need to retaliate. There's no need to try and vindicate yourself and prove you're right. Just simply build the wall that God wants in your life. When we're faced with mockery, whether it's at work or at home, it's easy to get distracted and try and argue. But Nehemiah didn't argue. He just built the wall. He let his life shine. He let people observe that the wall was being built. And we need to do the same. And in doing that, it develops our character. We need to be respectful, we need to be sensitive, we need to be righteous, but we also need to not become easily offended. Inwardly it says, Nehemiah said, Hear, O Lord! Do you know what he was really saying? Do you know what that means? It means he was saying, God, you listen, because I haven't got time, I'm building the wall. He didn't get obsessed or overtaken by the mockery. He didn't allow himself to be affected by it. He'd come from a position where he was mourning the state of Jerusalem, the mess it was in. And he was built up inside. God had built him up and fortified him because he knew he was doing something worth doing. They could mock him as much as they liked. He just kept building the wall. In the end, the fact that the wall stood was proof that God was with Nehemiah. And the same is true in the work that we're in. The work of restoring the church, building the church. I mean, that doesn't mean when we get asked questions we don't answer them. We do. We answer questions graciously. But we need to keep on building. We need to stay on course. 
to keep going, to keep working. And then let the fruits of our labours speak for themselves. So he built the wall. And as he built the wall, the attacks changed. He came up instead against offers of compromise. Sanballat and Geshem, this is chapter 6, verse 2 onwards, sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. They were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying out a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. Nehemiah got offered compromise four times and every time he overcame it with one reply. I'm doing a great work and cannot come down. We can get distracted. There are so many groups and forums and committees that are planning a meeting for this and a meeting for that, particularly amongst church leaders, to discuss what is happening here or what is happening there. But we have to be selective where we put our time and energy. Otherwise, we could spend our lives forever in committees discussing what might happen next. Nehemiah didn't do that. He didn't get sucked into that trap. Instead, he said, no, I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. I can't spend my life debating the implication of what I'm doing. I need to obey God and fulfill his purposes in my life. He wasn't going to be tricked into spending his time talking about it rather than doing it. I don't know if, if the phrase, I'm doing a great work, I cannot come down, makes you think of anyone else. There was another man in the Bible, and his opponent said to him, If you are such a great man, why don't you come down from up there? And from the cross, he could easily have answered, Because I'm doing a great work, I cannot come down. And we have to identify with the cross. It can be very flattering to be invited to join committees, to talk to people about what we're doing. But we need to allow God to help us know when it's time to say no, when it's time to say Sorry, but I'm about a great work and I cannot come down. I can't spend my life discussing these things. And then we read in verse 5 of chapter 6 onwards. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written... It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, 
that you and the Jews are planning to revolt. And therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. So after compromise followed lies. Now amazingly, Nehemiah seemed relatively untroubled by them. He dismissed them. He just said, such things as you are saying have not been done. You are inventing it in your own mind. That's verse 8. He simply stated the truth. And as far as he was concerned, that was the end of it. We can be tempted to spend time trying to find out where the lies started. But we need to follow Nehemiah's example. We haven't got the time to chase mysterious allegations or try to unravel where they start. And just as Nehemiah didn't seem to be preoccupied by them and thrown off course, we mustn't either. If we find lies are being spread, we need to just press on. Next came the attack of fear. Chapter 6, verse 10. One day I went into the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, sorry, Deliah the son of Mehetabal, who was shut in at his home. He said... Let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you by night. They are coming to kill you. The attack of fear. But again, Nehemiah has a clear answer. In verse 11 he says, Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Now what sort of answer was that? Should a man like me flee? Was it arrogance? I don't think so. I think Nehemiah was filled with a sense of destiny. He had no intention of running away or being diverted because... He knew where his destiny lay. And we need to lay hold of our sense of destiny. We need to trust in God for protection when fear starts to overcome us. It's not always easy. Fear, among all things, is something which is irrational. If it was rational, we wouldn't be afraid of it. But it is something that creeps in and starts to preoccupy your mind. And we need to rely and trust in God for our protection. I remember some years back, um, I'd been working in trading standards for more, yet, more years than I care to number. And uh, I'd been dealing with the dirty end of the business, uh, which was uh, counterfeiting and video piracy and pornography. And in those days, that brought you into contact with two groups of people. 
it brought you into contact with paedophile rings and it brought you into contact with the IRA because they use counterfeiting and video piracy to launder money. And uh, I went into work one day. It was while I was working for New Frontiers. I'd been out of trading standards about 18 months. And uh, opened the post. Started off perfectly normal day. Until I opened one particular envelope. And it contained a death threat. I must admit I had to sit down. I don't know why. I was stood up leaning over my desk opening the post. And I remember I had to sit down. And just suddenly, it was like all the wind had been knocked out of my sails. You know the saying? All my energy had gone. I don't know how I even sat there. And then my brain kicked in and my training kicked in. And I uh, said to a colleague who was in the room, that I needed a plastic wallet and put the letter straight in the plastic wallet and one thing and another and sort of started to get back on top of things. But just for that brief moment, I was totally distracted. I can remember when we told Mawena later in the day and for a moment it became totally absorbing for her. What about the kids? What do we do? We put some very simple safeguards in place. The police were involved. But actually, we had to rely on God for our protection. You have to get to that point where you say, if someone's out there to get me, they have every opportunity. I can't spend my life in four walls that they can't get through. You have to get to a point where you hand over the responsibility for your safety and your well-being to God. And that's what Nehemiah did here. Such was his trust and his faith in God, but it didn't rattle him. He said, Who am I? Should I run away? Should I go and hide in the temple? The other aspect of that is, for him to go into the temple, he wasn't a priest. So he'd have been sinning in doing that. So they were encouraging him to go and sin, to go and hide in the temple. Should a man like me flee? The answer is we need to find our trust in God. We trust in a God who was Abraham was about to sacrifice his very son on an altar up a mountain provided for him. Can he not protect us? So as that attack didn't work, the fifth line of attack was unleashed. That of disloyalty. In verse 17 of chapter 6 it says... In those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and the replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was the son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Arah, and his son, Jehanoahan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Merechiah. Moreover, 
they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I had said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. When you read through the following verses, actually, the story provides no answer to how Nehemiah overcame disloyalty. What's clear is his heart was broken. And if you've ever faced disloyalty, you'll probably know the pain and anguish that he must have felt. Because when someone you trust and thinks is working with you, turns their back on you and works against you, it is a pain like no other. You have to learn to bear it. And in particular, you have to make sure that it doesn't become something where the seed of bitterness is sown. If someone lets you down, don't let that root of bitterness grow up and spoil your life. Because if you do, everyone who comes near you will suffer as well. It may hurt, but you mustn't let your spirit be polluted. And Nehemiah learnt this lesson very quickly. Because if you look forward to the next chapter, chapter 7, verse 2, we find that when the wall is rebuilt and the doors set in place, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites are appointed. He says, I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And when we're wounded by the disloyal, we have to make sure that what we do is next time build on loyal people. And that's what Nehemiah did. He didn't react. He didn't say, I'm going to have to do it all myself because I can't trust anyone. He simply made sure that the next men that he chose to build on were loyal and feared God. The thing is, those to whom God entrusts responsibility don't always appear significant. And if you notice, it doesn't say he appointed people who were among the nobles. He appointed his brother and the guy who was the commander of the fortress. They might not have been public figures, but they must have been loyal men of integrity who feared God. So what was it that made Nehemiah so steadfast? What was it that kept him going through all these attacks? I think there's a number of things. And the first one is his calling. He said, such a man as I. What it shows is, it wasn't that he was arrogant or full of self-importance, but he was aware that God had caught hold of him in that time when he was mourning in front of the king. He'd met with God, he'd been fortified by the Holy Spirit, and he had been set apart for a purpose. He knew he had been chosen. And we can be fortified by a similar truth. 
the Bible says, he has chosen us before the world was formed. He's chosen us to be holy. He's chosen us to be blameless. He's chosen us to be his. The Bible says, he has predestined us. And we become strong when we realise that God, out of his huge and great wisdom and knowledge, reached down to us throughout all the ages and chose us. We might feel weak. We might feel feeble. But God has chosen to use us. I think actually it would be good. I don't do this very often. But actually, just say, can you repeat after me? God has chosen to use me. Yeah? Shall we try that together? God has chosen to use me. Now let's say it as if you believe it. Yeah? God has chosen to use me. Who's he chosen to use? I didn't quite catch that. Who has he chosen to use? That's a bit better. Come on, you can do better than that. Who has he chosen to use? Yeah. And Martin as well, he put his hand up. Yeah. He has chosen to use us. So for that reason... When we're faced with times of difficulty, we can say like Nehemiah, I'm not going to run away. Should such a man as me flee? Should they? If God has chosen me, should such a man as I flee? So what about Paula? Should she run? Or Betty? Or Martin, or Martin, or Corin, or Malcolm, or Heather, or Glynn, or John, or Sue, or Chris and Jackie. Have I missed anyone? Dave, Dave, I think I missed. Should we run away when we come up against opposition? In Philippians 3, Paul addresses this issue. It's verse 12. And he introduces us to what I can only describe as the most wonderful that in the Bible. Did you know what I'm talking about? He says on, he says, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Have a look at that verse and start to think about what is the that that it's referring to. Paul is saying, the eternal God laid hold of me. He's saying, I was a rebel, I was an opponent to the gospel, but Christ took hold of me. Now if you're a Christian, that's true of us too. Now, it doesn't matter whether your conversion was dramatic like Paul's, whether you saw blinding lights and went for days and your sight didn't come back until people prayed for you, 
or whether it was something where you can't quite put your finger on what happened, but you know you changed. If you're a Christian, that verse is true. Christ laid hold of you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you say, but I came from a Christian home. There are plenty of people who come from Christian homes, but who have not followed through to follow Jesus. But for every one of us who does, every one of us who knows the Lord, the truth is that Christ laid hold of us. And so, if that's you, there's a that tied up in your life. Because Christ took hold of you for that. I've got a that for which Christ took hold of me. And you've got a that for which Christ took hold of you. And Paul said he was pressing on after his that. He was going to get it. He was going to lay hold of it. His consuming passion was to lay hold of that for which Christ had laid hold of him. It was the all-consuming passion of Paul's life. He had a destiny. He had dignity. He wasn't going to be thrown around by the circumstances of life. And with Paul, that was a good job because he had plenty of circumstances. But neither do you need to be. If you're in a world of cynicism and indifference where people ask, who can really change anything? Where people feel so helpless, where even in our democratic system people wonder, what can we really do? Knowing a God who has laid hold of you makes all the difference he has taken hold of you for a purpose that's what the that is it is a purpose to give us a destiny and we need to reply I am going to take hold of that for which you took hold of me Nehemiah was aware that he was a called person and so he responded zealously. And because of that, he actually found a whole crowd of people responding with him. When he got passionate about rebuilding Jerusalem, and he arrived back there, he discovered a whole army of people. And they said, let's arise and build. They had a corporate sense of destiny. And today, we need to have that corporate sense of destiny that God is doing a great work and we're involved in it. For some decades, the church has been in the doldrums a bit. But God is rebuilding her. And we're part of that activity. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are part of the rebuilding of a church. Thousands are being affected. And in his wonderful mercy, God is using us. When you look upon
on that. How can you get caught up with things that are of less worth? The King of Glory is going to make his church shine again. And he's asked us to be involved in his great plan. We're helping prepare the way. Now, I'm not suggesting we're anything special. I'm not anything special. Nehemiah was nothing. But by virtue of his call, and by virtue of his awareness of it, and his understanding of it, he said, should such a man as I flee? Am I in the will of God? ask you a question. Does the thought of the will of God grip you and thrill you? Does it? The thought of working out God's purposes on earth, does that motivate you? Good. Nehemiah couldn't escape God's call on his life. And so what he did was he embraced it. He embraced it with a total commitment and he used it as a weapon to overcome every enemy. Because he was armed with purpose. That, that, he used it as a weapon. He wasn't aimless. And because he wasn't aimless, he wasn't vulnerable to those attacks. So that's the first thing. He was a man of destiny. He was secure in his destiny. He knew what it was. He accepted the call of God on his life. And then the second reason he overcame. That call was matched by commitment. In Nehemiah 4.23 it says, Neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each took his weapon even to the water. If you read on, it talks about working with the sword and the trowel. They were building the wall with one hand, but with a sword in the other hand, ready to fight off any attack that came. And that's how we're going to build the church. In the same way, with the sword and the trowel. We're going to raise the house of God in the midst of our enemies. Those who don't want us here. And we'll do it with the sword and the trowel. We need to both fight and build. Some people built during the day and then were on guard duty all night. But whatever, they were totally committed to the work that was underway. Why? Because they were convinced it was a great project. Are you committed to the work of glorifying Jesus on this earth? Are you committed to the work of saving the lost? Or do you think that church is just a nice place to be on a Sunday morning? I think as we look around this nation at the moment, we see more and more people taking up the challenge of wholeheartedly commitment to Christ and his church. He knew his call. It was matched by commitment. And then he reassured the people 
In chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Do not be afraid of them. Remember, the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight. <laughs> it's some statement, isn't it? It's some statement. And we need a revelation, not only of how loving our God is, but how great and terrible our God can be at times. Because he is. He is awesome. He is worthy of all our awe. That's what that means. We should stand back and go. That's what he means. We shouldn't be able to take in what he is able to do. But then we need to stand in his shadow and fight. Assured that he will supply. It says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. If you're not strong in the Lord, then what happens is the devil starts to attack you with fiery darts. And whereas if you're wearing the, the armour, they bounce off. If you're not standing in God's might, they penetrate. Be strong. Because you must be strong. And be strong because you can be. Remember the Lord who is great and terrible and fight. And then the God of heaven will give us success if we have absolute confidence in him. Fourthly, Nehemiah then grouped men together. You know, in panic, some were terrified. Some were terrified, but as they were building the wall, they would be overrun by their enemies. It says in chapter 4, verse 12, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. So it goes on to say in verse 13, so Nehemiah stationed his men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears and bows. And what it means is, they stood together. Now sometimes because of the length of the wall, they were separated from one another. So Nehemiah gave them some very simple instructions. He said, sound the trumpet if there's an attack. In verse 20 you'll find that, at whatever place you hear the sound of a trumpet, rally to us there. And that sort of comradeship needs to characterise our church life. When we go through trials or pressures, we shouldn't go through them alone. Now, our personal relationship with Jesus is a vital part of our spiritual life. But we also need to blow the trumpet. Why? So that people can rush and help take the load from you. And so if you've been struggling, the question that I would ask you is, have you blown the trumpet? Have you blown the trumpet and let people come to your aid? Because that's the type of church we need to be. That when people blow the trumpet, we rally around them and support them and fight with them. 
God wants his church to be a community where if you pick up the phone, there are people ready to lend a hand and offer a prayer. Where they rush in, not for any other reason than because they care. As churches grow larger, there has to be a group of people who you know and care for and you know care for you. But there's a responsibility on all of us. And that is, if we are in distress, we need to be open. Not self-sufficient or independent, but willing to ask for help. It's too easy to be proud. So proud that we can't be honest. So when someone says to you, how are things going? We use that Sunday morning speech. And we say, fine, thank you. God wants us to be more honest than that. If you're under pressure, blow the trumpet. Cry out for help. I I remember a meeting. It was a men's meeting some years ago when a friend of mine who was a policeman arrived. And I think he'd just come off shift, if I remember right. And he was obviously utterly exhausted. He turned up a bit late. The room was crowded. And uh, someone said to him, how are you doing? And he started off by saying, I am shattered. I am at the end of myself. Now, it would have been easy to think, that's a good way to start a meeting. Oh, Oh no, we've got a downer before we get going. But actually, because he shared that and the way he shared it, actually presence of God was manifested because people gathered around him and prayed and there was a real sense of sharing of that load with him and actually it was a bit of a spiritual breakthrough because men seem to find that more difficult than women let's be honest but he was a brother blowing his trumpet he didn't conceal his need instead he shared it And sometimes pressure will come to your part of the wall. And if you don't shout, we may not know about it. We need to build a sense of comradeship into all our relationships. So that's the fourth one. And then there was one last weapon. And that is, as you read through that whole story in Nehemiah, what we find is that Nehemiah was in a state of almost constant prayer. When you read through it, you can't fail to see the number of verses where Nehemiah cries out, Hear me, O God! From the very outset, he was a man of prayer. In chapter 1, you see a long intercessory prayer. That's when he's thinking about things before the king. And then in chapter 2, we hear about his meeting with the king. And the king says, what would you request? And he says, I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. 
That is how Nehemiah lived all the time. And later on, you see, it says that Nehemiah didn't even have time to change his clothes from one day to the next. Even when he went down to the water, they didn't change their clothes. But he was constantly crying out, God, hear what my enemy is saying. And without ceasing, he prayed, hear me, O God. He was constantly asking God to strengthen him. Just like Jesus. And just like Jesus, his prayers were ceaseless. Now I'll tell you something. We will never see what God has for us unless we develop a lifestyle of constant prayer to God. That was how Nehemiah overcame. It was how Jesus prevailed. The early disciples had to learn that lesson from him. And it says they devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer underpinned all their activity. But I bet it was never dull or routine. It was always in the context of the gospel advancing. On the day of Pentecost, they prayed. And fire fell from heaven. A few days later, they prayed and the house shook and they were freshly filled with the Holy Spirit and boldness. News of Peter's imprisonment inspired them. So much so, what did they do? Did they go and storm the jail? No. They prayed. They stormed the heavens in intercession and that led to his release. We need to cover all our activities in faith-filled prayer if we're going to enjoy anything like the success that Nehemiah experienced. So, Nehemiah brushed aside every attack that was launched against him. With determination, he pressed forward towards his goal. He knew God had taken hold of him. And like Jesus, his food was to do the will of God who sent him and to finish his work. Nothing could deter him from that course. And I just want to say, you know, may God inspire a similar devotion and determination in us so that in our day the church might be restored. Restored to the beauty and strength and be the bride that is truly worthy of her Lord. I feel some things we need to consider this morning. I've got to the end of my notes. Actually, I think there's some application needed this morning. Do you know that call of God on your life? If you don't, let's pray for you this morning. Are you needing to blow the trumpet? But for some reason, that trumpet hasn't got to your lips yet. If so, let us rally to you this morning and support you. Let us fight alongside you.
And I think increasingly over the past month or so, the issue of prayer has really been on my heart. And I'm intending to preach on prayer in the autumn because I really feel we need to see a stepping up of our prayer life within the church. But actually, this morning, if I'm not careful, I'll end up preaching on prayer this morning. But in my preparation for preaching on prayer in the autumn, what I've recognised is there are three stages that we can be at. Most of us are at level one, if we're honest. And that's where we spend a lot of our life, but it shouldn't be. And that is where we desire to pray. We do seem to all have an innate desire to pray. And that causes part of our frustration, because we have the desire, but we don't get, we don't get it out. We don't get down to it enough. What we need to build on top of that desire is the discipline to pray. And as we do that, God actually turns the discipline into delight. And we can truly get to a point where it is a delight to pray. Now if you're struggling with that this morning, if you know your prayer life isn't where you want it to be, you can make a change to that this morning. You can ask someone to pray with you this morning and you can go away just saying, I'm going to make this different. And that's the first stage. And we'll look at that more in the autumn. So don't, don't worry, don't give up on it. But, you know, actually we all have that desire. Most of us feel our prayer life isn't what we'd like it to be. So don't get under guilt or condemnation. Just recognise it. Okay? Are you willing to add some discipline and let God turn that time into delight? If you'd like that, get someone to pray with you this morning. Now I'm going to finish the meeting there, but I really want to challenge you. If those things are hitting home, don't go without getting someone to pray with you this morning. Don't need to be me. Melk's a good prayer as well. He'll pray with you all. He likes that sort of thing. Okay. No, seriously, it could be anyone, someone you're comfortable with. Just say to them, I've got this pressure in my life, I need to blow the trumpet. Just say to them, I know my prayer life isn't what I'd like it to be. Will you pray with me about that? Or if you don't know that you're in God's purposes, get someone to pray that through with you. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.